Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder. I think that we're gonna be able to learn quite a bit about co-living and then also how to uh, build a company, you know, with with that in mind, you know, like on a on a high on a hyper growth type of speed. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Andrew Collins. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Really excited to be here. So born in Oklahoma, how was life there? <laughs> it was fantastic. Uh, you know, Oklahoma, incredible, rich, vibrant culture in Tulsa, um, but also an amazing childhood growing up. Uh, American football, obviously, is king, um, but but really fun from the very beginning. And I think that here there's something really interesting is that you're you come from a from a family where they're actually serial entrepreneurs. So I guess that that's maybe where you really got exposure to to how you were perhaps able to dream something and bring it to life. So so what did you really get from those years and from that exposure that your family gave you into the world of entrepreneurship? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think from the moment that I can, can first remember from age five on, uh, I just knew that I wanted to start my own company. Um, I thought that that was what everyone did. Um, you know, my, my father... Uh, a lot of his siblings, my mother, uh, are all serial entrepreneurs in their own right. Being from Oklahoma, it was more in the oil and gas and trucking industries, uh, but really, you know, spreading the whole gamut. Uh, and I think that then really shaped and informed my life and my broader career trajectory. Um, and I was constantly, even for the moment of doing lemonade stands in middle school, which sounds very cliche. Uh, to then spending hours in the Oklahoma Well Log Library as I was thinking about opportunities around, uh, you know, where where do we unlock that next business opportunity in high school? Um, that then shaped my career and always focusing on those learnings uh, and gaining those management skills would one day position me well to, to start something on my own. And you went to Princeton. So why sociology? Yeah, so... You know, Princeton is a very liberal arts school, um, studied economics and sociology there. Um, it was really interesting. I thought I would do econ through and through from the very beginning, but really fell in love with sociology uh, after taking a one-on-one course 
Um, sociology is really the you know, broad-based group dynamic of psychology. And so it's understanding why do groups behave in the way in which they do? What are ways in which you can drive and influence that? What are ways in which you can support that? And interestingly, uh, then the management theory courses that I've taken in subsequent years, all of the underpinnings and the primary research for those were the sociological texts that I then wrote in Princeton. Got it. Got it. And then after Princeton, you ended up moving to, to California. And there was a, you know, a company there that, that you worked for called Medallia that really changed you know, the perspective. And, and, and also you, you got involved being in Palo Alto and probably like all these incredible ideas, you know, like that people were bouncing back and forth. But, but what, what was so um, incredible here is that you started when there were like 50 employees or so, and then they scaled it up to, to over a thousand employees. So how was the experience uh, working there? And, and what is it like to be part of a rocket ship like that? <laughs> it's incredible. Um, you know, as I reflect on that time, a lot of my friends were going to New York. This was 2010. Uh, and so making that move out to San Francisco uh, really was an ode back to those times in childhood when I knew that I wanted to become an entrepreneur. And so I thought, what better opportunity set than to join a fast-paced startup um, where I could learn directly from the founders around what does it mean to scale? What does hypergrowth look like? Um, you know, I think Andy Radcliffe of Wealthfront has a great blog post about this, which is by joining a fast-paced, high-growth startup, you have an opportunity to really have a slingshot effect on your career for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, the pace of learning, just because of the outsized responsibility that you'll be given as a young entrepreneur or as a young person is extraordinarily high. Uh, much higher than you'd gain if you went to uh, a much bigger firm. That certainly panned out for me. And then I think the other opportunity is by aligning yourself with a highly successful organization, uh, that then has a multiplying effect on your career from uh, external parties as well. And so I was so excited to join them and move out here and learn sort of what does uh, the world of Silicon Valley and high-tech, high-growth startups look like. Uh, and then Amy Berga in particular, just an incredible founding team. Uh, you knew you walked out of an interview and did well with Amy if you walked out with uh, three or four business books. Um, certainly growth mindset from Carol Dweck, but usually then good to great uh, or tribal leadership as well. And that ethos of just scaling and building was so ingrained within our operating rhythm. Uh, and it was really a lesson that I've taken with me since. Got it. So I guess uh, those high-performance uh, teams and, and this type of cultures, what do you think are some of the uh, fundamental building blocks that they are really, you know, sustained by? I, you know, everyone sort of says culture, and I think that ultimately comes through. Um, for us, both at Medallia um, and what we've pulled to Bungalow, it's a really a focus on deep-seated curiosity and growth mindset. Um, it's understanding that the problems that we will face are generally problems that people haven't seen before. Uh, and so it's how do you create scalable frameworks that allow you to then be aligned as an organization on how are you going to work through those uh, and come to agreement. 
I think there's also just a level of comfort with ambiguity um, that like hyper growth, hyper scaling. Uh, I remember our group within Medallia reorged, I believe, three times in four years. Uh, and so you just have to have comfort that the status quo and where uh, the organization is built for today does not necessarily mean the same thing that's going to drive success within six months uh, and certainly not within two years from now. Uh, and I think that also gets back to this you know, importance on always questioning why is a process or a team implemented in the way that which it is. And just because that's the way in which it has been done does not mean that it's optimized, right? Uh, and so there's just this constant iteration and tight feedback loops, uh, not only sort of with your customer base around how do you improve your organization and your product, but also internally uh, with your own teams so that you're making sure that you're moving as quickly as possible. Got it. And, and also for the people that are listening, you know, what does a successful, uh, tight uh, feedback, feedback loop look like? Great question. I mean, I think one of the pieces that we've made sure that we've put in place from the very beginning is ensuring that you have uh, clear data and analytics and basically BI tooling throughout the organization. That's looking not only at sort of outputs and you know your ARR retention rates, um, contribution margin, the sort of kind of key quality metrics that you might be having, but also what are the input metrics that then drive those? Uh, and so that allows you to take action much more quickly uh, and potentially identify uh, challenges before they start. And I'd say there's also a really big qualitative effort here. It's through the structure of your one-on-ones, through the structure of your meetings with your team. Um, it's really creating a culture of feedback. Um, Radical Candor is a fantastic book, as I'm sure most of your listeners have probably read. Uh, but really ensuring that that culture of feedback, starting at the top uh, and making sure that I am asking for that feedback in every single meeting uh, is really important to be able to drive towards a better outcome for all. Got it. And here you were in Medallia for four years, and then all of a sudden you make the decision to go back to school. What happened there? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it again comes back down to a rate of learning. Um, I was blown away at the problem sets, the responsibility, the challenges that I was given at Medallia. Um, I learned immense amounts, um, but I had focused within sort of, you know, at, at Medallia, I was really focused within customer experience uh, and the customer success group. I helped them then sort of build out and co-lead a retail vertical where we uh, had a lot of exposure to different go-to-market strategies. And so I felt very strong about my sales and marketing uh, background and sort of business development characteristics um, or, I guess, skill set. Uh, but I really had had no exposure to finance, accounting, uh, and some of the more quantitative uh, pieces of marketing. So I really wanted to gain those from, from business school. And I really felt that going back to business school was a, you know, phenomenal way to accelerate learnings uh, that a generalist would need to then go and start an organization. Um, I think the other kind of core point was you know, moving from Oklahoma to Princeton and then uh, from the East Coast out to San Francisco. I really didn't know a soul when I made those moves. And I found the first nine to 12 months of finding my friend group to be really difficult. 
Um, and I had seen now new members on my team at Medallia uh, really wrestle with those same challenges. And so I felt like there is a potential business opportunity around community and unlocking friend groups and, and helping people you know, really feel grounded from the moment they move into a new city. But I had no idea what the business venture would actually be. Uh, and so I really wanted to go back to business school to give myself the you know, time and space and opportunity uh, to really tinker around with a few different ideas as well. Got it. And obviously here, uh, it's interesting because Wharton is a community that I, that I know very well. Uh, and, the, and basically, you know, like most of the people, you know, either go to a consulting firm or maybe investment <laughs> banking. And here you are, you decide to go to Facebook. So, you know, probably people were a little bit uh, surprised. So why did you make the decision to go to Facebook? Oh, that was undergrad too, to be honest, um, was the exact same. I think, again, it comes back down to rate of learning, right? And what are, what are the, you know, careers in life are not linear by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think you can sort of think about uh, in the same way that we sort of plan our business and think about where do we want to be ultimately, and then backcast from there, figuring out where are the skill gaps um, that I want to then unlock, and what do we think that are the job opportunities or businesses or companies that can then fill in those gaps the best. And so for Facebook, I really wanted to see one back on that community piece, what does a world-class digital community look like at scale? And then two, uh, my sort of professional life at that point had really, you know, especially since college, had only been exposure through Medallia. Um, and Medallia was amazing, moving from 50 to 1,000 employees. But I wanted to see what do the inner workings of a world-class, um, mature, big-tech company look like? Um, so that I could then take some of those learnings in as I then ultimately wanted to start a company down the road. So what were those learnings that you took with you? Big one was I was thoroughly impressed at how much the culture and values and hiring bar still showed through. And that was when there were about 10,000, 11,000 employees. Um, and this was pre-Cambridge Analytica as well. Uh, and you could just tell the excitement and the alignment and the pace was really wild. Um, you know, I think they also had this amazing uh, culture of just moving very quickly, testing and learning and iterating. Um, and that was really impactful for me to see that these same values that I held very dear at Medallia, that I thought were amazing, could still be replica replicated and uh, execute on at an excellence level at a company of that scale. Got it. So uh, then after Facebook, then you go to Atomic, and this is really where you start to shape up the idea of a bungalow, no? Now, one thing that, you know, is really interesting to me is here you are, you know, like in your, in your teens or even earlier than that, looking at, you know, your family of serial entrepreneurs, and it literally took you years to finally, you know, took the leap and and start, you know, bungalow. So, so why do you think it took you so long? I mean, man, you're you're you definitely plan things in advance, Andrew. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, again, careers aren't necessarily linear, um, and I think for me, it was around wanting to ensure that I had the 
suite of skills that I thought that it would take to be successful um, or to give myself the confidence that I had to uh, one, test and iterate a company idea uh, and, and two, really be able to attract and lead a world-class team. Um, and I think, you know, there are certainly a lot of cases of very young entrepreneurs who uh, have had this amazing product idea and technical product that has then driven enormous success behind them. Um, but I think the the idea of a, you know, drop out of college, um, start a company is actually the, the rarity. Um, and if you look at if you look at the data, the vast majority of venture-backed founders are actually in their late 30s. Um, and I think a lot of that is you know, ultimately because people want to build that skill set and are better positioned to start and run organizations once they've you know, experienced some of these high-performance cultures, as well as some things that haven't worked. So you can take those learnings into how you apply that to organizational structure and building. So then in your case, at what point did you really... Uh, you know, see that most of those check marks well, were met and that you were prepared to really go at it? I think as I was exploring opportunities um, out of business school. Uh, for me, it was really interesting. I was evaluating either going and being uh, the first sort of business hire uh, at a very early stage startup. I was evaluating starting my own organization and then getting to know the Atomic folks, Jack Abraham, Andrew Dudum, uh, they're all operators in their own right. And so I saw an amazing opportunity to come in and continue to iterate and evaluate and grow the idea that ultimately became Bungalow um, and also gain this amazing mentorship and, uh, you know, really, I guess, mentorship. From, from folks who are serial entrepreneurs and operators in their own right. Uh, and that really allowed me to accelerate my learning. And I think that certainly, as I reflect on my career and as I reflect on today and where I am currently, really optimizing on learnings and surrounding yourself with people that can accelerate your own career growth and learning uh, is invaluable. And I think absolutely what, what separates those who win from those who fail. So I guess uh, just like an a interesting question that comes up to mind, because it seems that, that you have been able to surround yourself by the right people at the right time. Uh, and, and obviously this happened, you know, like with, with the guys from Atomic, this happened with the investors that you've also been able to onboard. So I guess, how do you know, how do you know what that, that there's stuff there that you don't know, and how do you identify those people that can cover out those gaps for you? A lot of self-introspection, to be honest. Um, and then I also think this culture of feedback uh, is incredibly important. Lean on, lean on your peers, lean on your mentors, lean on the people that surround yourself uh, to give you that feedback uh, and pair that with your own introspection. Uh, for me, it was really important, you know, as we evaluated starting this, um, our Series A investor that we brought on was Keith Raboy. And the reason why we selected him was his incredible experience within marketplace organizations uh, and operating experience that we thought would give us an unfair advantage as we really scaled up Bungalow. 
And I think being able to compare ourselves to the DoorDashes, the Open Doors, and at this point as a Series A company, holding ourselves to that same standard really accelerated the way in which we operate uh, as an organization, I think really allowed us to move much faster uh, than some of the competitors. And so I think it's really introspection. Because for you guys, what ended up being the, the business model of Bungalow? Yeah, so the business model of Bungalow, um, so really quickly, Bungalow has quickly become the largest co-living company within the U.S. Uh, the ultimate business model for us was we recognized that there is this excess inventory of existing single-family homes, brownstones, large apartments, that even in these incredibly tight real estate markets, uh, the three, four, five-bedroom-plus homes are actually still quite difficult to rent out as a homeowner. Uh, and so we were able to step in and act as a alternative to property management for homeowners. Uh, we'll take care of all the lease-up, furnishings, uh, maintenance, and really be able to increase their yields pretty significantly. Uh, and then for residents, it was really built out of our own, you know, my own empathy for the resident experience. I'd moved around a bunch as we we talked about finding that community, um, finding that network of friends when you first land is quite difficult. Uh, I was fortunate to live with a few amazing roommates uh, along my journey, and most recently when I moved back to San Francisco. And so, it really felt like there was an opportunity to to really improve that experience. Um, and so, for the resident. We'll find these beautiful homes. We furnish them out incredibly nicely. Uh, and then we help you find other great individuals to live with. Uh, and so we'll rent individual bedrooms out within those homes, uh, creating tight-knit households, and then taking care of all the headaches. So housekeeping, Wi-Fi, utilities uh, are all set up from the moment that you move in. Um, and then we run member events across all the properties as well. So you get this uh, great network of not only your housemates, but also the broader community of a few hundred and eventually a few thousand uh, roommates within a market to really dive into and, and hit the ground running from day one. So grit definitely was a, something that was present during the early days. Tell us about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that for anyone out there who is trying to start a residential real estate company, do not do it in the dead of winter. Um, there is real seasonality to this business. And so our first couple of properties that we brought online, you're tinkering around, you're trying to understand what's going on. Um, you know, I did everything from acting as a leasing agent to maintenance requests to changing locks and doorknobs. Uh, I think I still have uh, a toolkit and a doorknob in the trunk of my car right now. Uh, what is that, two years later? But I think there's real value in really learning the intricacies, the nit and gritty, and what, what works in framing, talking to customers, doing the entire sales cycle yourself, because it really allows you to understand what are the friction points in the process, and how can you, as an entrepreneur and as a leader, really make that easier, both for your customers as well as for your eventual teammates. Right? And that really proved invaluable. I think the other piece, um, come January, February, March, once the market and seasonality really started to take off, it was really apparent to me that I had seen on a very micro level of a handful of properties that the unit economics, the 
uh, community, the resident experience, the demand that was created, there's a massive organization there. And so that is, I think, one of the pieces that tends to get lost for entrepreneurs is you'll have a lot of external parties saying this, this thing, this idea, this product, whatever it is, is fantastic. But you as the entrepreneur and as the leadership team or as a first employee, it's really critical that you see the traction, you see the proof point that gives you confidence that you want to spend the next 10 years of your life doing this um, and feel like you can really build something that that makes a dent in the world. Um, And I think those early days for me were incredibly helpful uh, and really proved to be invaluable for us as then you get pulled into the nitty gritty and it's really coming back to that, that confidence that gives you the excitement to then go out and recruit and bring in your, your close friends, bring in um, amazing executives, bring in incredible investors uh, as you can really see that traction work and, and gain it your own hands. So when you're surrounding yourself by the right people, you know, like you were saying, like bringing all these people and, and having them push and, 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 and be with that, you know, behind the trenches with you. What does alignment look like and how do you get, you know, that alignment? How do you get people to really rally towards, you know, a bigger purpose? Yes. Um, it really starts with a clear vision. It really starts with thinking through and pushing on that vision around where do we want to be in 5, 10, 15 years? And then working backwards from that. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we do really well as an organization is thinking about step function changes and step function improvement. Uh, Dan Levin, uh, former president and CEO of Box, outlined it as you know, it's really important that you think about running play, doing a football reference, um, running plays and passing plays uh, as an organization. So in a company such as this, fighting for every single basis point, on unit profitability and on contribution margin uh, is incredibly important. And you need to have the team rally and focus on that as every dollar counts, um, as it allows us to then provide an amazing uh, and affordable, accessible price point for our customers and our residents. But at the same time, you need to ensure that you're also looking at okay, what are the step function changes in strategy or in the product or in the capital structure that'll also then allow me to go and capture 100,000 properties um, and help a half a million people over the next handful of years? Uh, and so I think really you know, being thoughtful and diligent and breaking down you know, where do we want to go and then thinking backwards from that around, okay, how are we going to get there? Now, you're certainly not going to have all of the intricate steps and all the intricate answers as to how you're going to do that. It allows you to break the problem down into big chunks and de-risk along the way and then rally your team um, and your investor group around this is the alignment of how we drive forward um, and then prove out that progress uh, in a very clear way along the way as well. So you were talking about investors. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? We've raised $68 million in total. Got it. So how was the, um, you know, it's interesting because a business of this nature, you have the real estate component, you have the hyper growth, you know, combining with technology. So, so I guess what are some of the 
uh, expectations that typically uh, an investor, you know, let's say in your in your guys' experience doing your A round or your B round, what were some of the expectations that you were encountering from those investors? Well, I think it's a lot around understanding alignment and vision and where do you want to take the organization. Um, you know, we are fundamentally setting out to tackle two of the biggest problems I think of our generation, which is housing affordability and loneliness. And the market for that is near limitless. Uh, we're starting obviously here in the US, but it's really a global problem. And so getting excitement around how we as an organization can potentially make that shift and make that dent and really help solve two massive problems, I think, was one piece that uh, you know, our team and investors and potential investors is really important that we all share that same vision and excitement as well. Uh, and then, you know, I think one of the big difference around my and my co-founders DNA are we're really marketplace and technology people. Uh, and so some co-living companies, I think, are much more real estate focused. And so for us, as we thought about the investor base and we thought about our partners that we wanted to build, especially in the seed series A and series B, it was really focusing in on uh, those world-class marketplace uh, investors and operators. And so Keith was one, um, Matt Mazio and Co2 uh, joined us at the series B, uh, Kosla at the series A. And so we really found that our target list of who we were looking for um, were best-in-class operators and investors within this type of uh, this type of organization. Those were also the ones that tended to be the most interested as well, because they had pattern recognition around seeing similar companies such as Airbnb um, have tremendous success. And so, I think that that selection process and alignment was was really helpful. Um, and it was really clear to go into, you know, these fundraises with the knowledge basis of this is the type of person I'm looking for. Got it. And, you know, it's interesting also your guys' model and, and you are alluding to when it comes to marketplaces. I mean, when we think about technology and marketplaces that, you know, the transaction, you know, would happen online. But, you know, in a model like yours, you know, where, where you're building, you know, that network, that community, you know, also some of those transactions and those interactions, they happen offline with the community that you're building. So so can you expand on 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 that online, you know, uh, and also offline, you know, type of uh, ingredients to make, you know, a community or a marketplace of this nature be successful? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the exciting part, right? Um, we're not just building a widget that is purely digital, but we are building a product that our residents spend the majority of their lives in. Um, and that offline component is incredibly exciting. And I think we live in we live in a world where digital products can really help enable and streamline uh, the offline world in, in ways that you wouldn't have necessarily even thought about five years ago. So for instance, um, we have built a whole resident onboarding and leasing flow uh, that can now be done totally digitally, totally self-serve. Um, as we think about deployment of maintenance techs and building a best-in-class customer experience, we focused on building route optimization software uh, that helps us be able to you know, efficiently clean, organize, and show and maintain these properties that are all decentralized 
um, and spread across LA and the Bay Area, which are both huge markets. Um, but I think the other kind of core component there that's really important is, you know, we do have, unlike a SaaS business, we do have real cogs. And so it's really important that we as a organizational company and the leadership team, team are very thoughtful around, you know, what are those unit economics and uh, how do we set up the business so that it withstands the test of time and that we're able to continue to deliver enormous value to our customers, both homeowners and residents. Um, and so I think, you know, it's actually a, a probably a lot more complicated and harder problem to solve, uh, but one that is deeply interesting uh, and really, really exciting. So then, if, for example, like in this case, let's say you go to sleep tonight, Andrew, and you yeah. go to sleep for five years, and then you all of a sudden wake up, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Bungalow is fully realized. What does that world look like? That world is a place where, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I think two of the pieces that we're really excited by are really around making a dent within, uh, within loneliness and accessibility within uh, existing markets. The Bay Area, LA, and, and the top global markets around the world they simply just cannot build new housing quickly enough, uh, either because of cost or regulatory environment. I, we got really excited because we can repurpose these properties to be much more efficient and dense. And therefore, uh, the cost of a bedroom on average within bungalow is 30% less than that of a studio apartment, which that opens up accessibility uh, for new grads, for young professionals, um, to really be able to access these cities and also access all that these cities have to offer because their income is no longer being 55% put towards housing costs, but on average, ours is less than a third. Uh, and so seeing that vision realized globally is one piece that I'm really excited by. The other is, you know, I think we're just on the tip of the iceberg of starting to speak about the loneliness epidemic. Um, the former Surgeon General of the U.S. just said that it is the next great health, physical health epidemic within the U.S. It's the same toll on your physical health as smoking two pack, two packs of cigarettes a day. Um, baby boomers, on average, had three close confidants that they felt, uh, you know, close enough to that they could talk about job troubles or relationship challenges. Um, millennials, on average, have zero or one. Um, and I think just in the same way that online dating has no longer been, it's really been destigmatized. I think uh, in the eHarmony days, roughly 2% of marriages came from online dating. Now it's over a third. Uh, I think you're going to see the same shift towards technology, helping people who are new to the city you know, really establish and find their firm group very quickly. Um, and so, in five years, really excited to have Bungalow be on the forefront of both of these issues and, and really making a strong dent on this uh, around the world. And I guess on that loneliness, uh, Andrew, what do you think is maybe like the main trigger behind that? Do you think it's maybe like technology that is isolating us or what do you think is really behind the loneliness? Yeah, the Wall Street Journal had a really interesting article that came out that showcased that uh, you know, lo chronic loneliness was actually very strongly on the decline 
ever until the release of the iPhone. And then once the iPhone re- was released, you just see this dramatic spike and kind of continuation of the trend line up and to the right, which you hate to see. Um, and so I do think even though we're more connected than we've ever been before digitally, um, we are losing sort of that touch with our friend group um, in the offline world. And so I think that that is a big component. I also think uh, migrations towards jobs to new opportunities, you know, just very anecdotally growing up in Oklahoma, very few of my friends left sort of the Oklahoma and Texas area to go to university. And now when I go home 10 years later, uh, my friends are scattershot all around the U.S., um, from L.A. and San Francisco to Denver to Austin. Um, and so I just think that uh, as the world has become more global in nature, um, our networks have shifted and we've become comfortable with moving more frequently and further than ever before. Got it. Got it. Makes total sense. I mean, it's amazing, like, the trends and how things are shifting. And so quickly, you know, because with technology... It's just incredible, the speed of things. So I guess, uh, you know, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is knowing what you know. No, I mean, it's it's been an amazing uh, run, you know, an amazing journey, you know, your entrepreneurial journey. Um, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and maybe have a chat with, with that younger self, maybe coming out of Wharton that was already clear about, you know, building a business uh, at some point, what would be that? one piece of business advice that you would give to that younger Andrew uh, before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really around some of the points that we've already made, uh, which is, you know, one, grit, tenacity, uh, the highs are incredibly high. The lows are incredibly low. Uh, but I think it's really around making sure that you have, make, making sure that you are excited and have the confidence around what it is that you're building that pull you through that. Um, I think the other component is having a co-founder or someone that you can lean on in the trenches and kind of, you know, I'm much more of a team sport person. And so building something with others is very much my style and I feel brings out the best in me personally. Um, I cannot emphasize that enough um, that I think that is an incredible unlock uh, to find that co-founder. I wish I'd found Justin uh, a little bit earlier, um, but also panned out perfectly. Um, And then it's, it's optimized on learning. Always push yourself outside of your comfort zone and surround yourself with people that can push your thinking. Um, I think ultimately, Carol Druck's growth mindset is exactly right. Uh, everyone can learn how to do incredibly challenging things. Um, and you learn by, I think, reading enormous amounts, um, by being able to surround yourself with people who have seen different challenges that might be similar before. Um, and then taking a logical structured approach to, to tackling those problems. Um, and it's, it's a ton of fun. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, Andrew, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, you can reach me at andrewbungalow.com. Amazing. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. 
Alejandro, thank you. Really appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.